Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for being here. It's great to um, dive into a really rich topic today. And um, just noting that it's the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av on this Wednesday night, tomorrow night. Um, a time of mourning, a time of crying, a time of uh, of feeling the brokenness of the world. There's plenty of occasions we have to feel the joy of the world. And this is a week where we allow ourselves to feel the sorrow of global poverty, environmental destruction, of injustices, of oppression and hate, and how that played out historically and how it plays out still today. And not to do that just to be a downer, but to do that to rebuild hope, to rebuild hope that our efforts matter, our spiritual intentionality matters, our learning matters. And um, so I, I, um, I, uh, I hope we can all be in that together, in that spirit of keeping our finger on the pulse of reality, of what we're encountering on a day-to-day -day basis and as students of history, what we know, and of the threats to the future, whether our minds are today in Israel, our minds today are in Ukraine, our minds are in America, wherever we are, that um, we both are, are realistic, uh, but also hopeful for what we can achieve together. I also want to dedicate our learning today to our dear friend, Dr. Gary Friedlander's wonderful mother, Dottie Friedlander, who passed away in 2012, 11 years ago. And um, it's an honor that our learning today can be in, in her memory and in her merit. And may um, her memory continue to be a blessing to Gary and to the whole family and to everyone who knew her and loved her. Thank, thank you, Gary, for that opportunity. So friends, um, before we jump into class 13 of Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz from the, from the 17th century, we're gonna start with a little poll question. On the problem of evil as it relates to religion, the question of the Odyssey, evil is a big barrier to my engagement with God. Right? I have a problem. There's a God, and yet there's evil. Option two, evil is not a religious problem for me since it's mostly human created. It's a human problem. It's not God's fault. Option three, evil is not necessarily evil since only God knows what is truly good or evil, not us. Who knows? Pain may be good for us. I know that's, uh, that's, that doesn't exhaust all of our options in theodicy, but those are three of the most common camps. Let's see our results here, Alex. 
Okay, an interesting split. 29% say evil is a big barrier to my engagement with God. 14% says evil is not necessarily evil, only God knows evil. And 57% say evil is not a religious problem for me because most evil is human created. So very interesting. Okay, friends, um, let's jump in here together. Leibniz is not a household name. Um, if you're a student of philosophy, you've come across him or of, the, of, the, of theology. But um, like the others we've talked about so far, that even if someone knows very little about them besides a quote or two, a concept or two, um, the names are recognizable. But Leibniz um, has a space in here, as we'll see. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why doesn't God make everything perfect for everyone at all times? Do we really have free will? During the Enlightenment, the questions of philosophy and theology were seen as two separate domains, but newfound knowledge also caused thinkers to approach the realm of theology differently, as we see with Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Leibniz was a German mathematician, scientist, and philosopher who developed his own unique way of understanding the makeup of reality. Leibniz was also a philosophical optimist, meaning he believed that God created the best of all possible world. For most of us, though, the world often doesn't feel that way. Whether consciously or not, we're all aware of the problem of theodicy. Why, are there, why, why is there so much suffering in a world created by a purportedly good God? The problem of theodicy rests on three theological commitments that monotheists typically hold. Number one, God's benevolence. God is good. Number two, God's omnipotence, that God is the power to control all things. Number three, that evil is real, that we know undue suffering is bad. We will need to give on one of these three if one wishes to believe there is a God, whether they are faithful about that or, or relatively agnostic about it. If one believes in divinity and yet um, they wish to resolve the problem of evil, they're going to have to give one up of these three. The most common move by religious people throughout the eras has been to give way on the third point, to say that, of course, God is good. And of course, God is all powerful. So there must be a fault in human understanding, they would argue. What appears to us as evil from our perspective must, in fact, be good from God's perspective. Perhaps God's understanding of morality is better than ours in a way that to us is incomprehensible. Or perhaps, perhaps suffering is, a necessary, is necessary and plays a constructive role in being a human being, right? Maybe um, I learned that getting sick made me a better person. Maybe I, be, I feel that I'm strong because of my early childhood poverty. Maybe there was some abuse I experienced that molded me into something greater in my new, in my new era. This is particularly popular in Christian theology, wherein Jesus, the Son of God, must reconcile an unjust world with the perfection of God by undergoing great suffering and even his own death, right? Jesus's suffering was good for the world. It was, it, it was redemptive. Now, that's option one. Option one, evil is um, not real. Suffering is not necessarily bad. 
The least appealing way of handling the theological problem, perhaps, is to deny God's benevolence. What would be the value of worshiping a God who is not good? Almost like a demon, a demon God. I mean, the, the thought is so uh, strange and unsettling in a sense. However, it could be argued that this notion is represented briefly in the Hebrew Bible when God is described as the source of both good and evil. It says in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is none else. I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. That is to say, differently than the idea that suffering is good, the idea that God is not benevolent, meaning human categories of a good God, don't apply. Yes, God did create evil. And yes, God, uh, God's evil creation is part of God's divine plan. Right? God did give birth to Hitler. God, God did give birth to the tools that, that can be used for destruction. Um, God did give birth to the human impulse for selfishness and destruction. Now, a liberal theologian, to go to the third level, might address the problem of evil by arguing that even though God may be omnipotent, God chooses not to intervene to prevent unnecessary suffering. This is done to ensure that humans have free will to act good or evil. The outcome of this is that people can do horrible things to each other. But what possible value is there to, to being human, one might ask, if humans are not free, we're just puppets. This is to say that yes, God is has the potential to be omnipotent, but out of love for humanity, God does not act with omnipotence in order to truly grant humans free will. So how could God allow, you know, World War II? How could God allow an innocent child to be killed? And say, well, God did that out of love, as strange as that seems to step back from the world and allow humans to be free so that they that human existence has meaning and is not merely humans being puppets and that means there's suffering that will be that is possible based on the fact that humans are free they can do horrific things okay so again option 1 god is benevolent or is god not benevolent according to human terms option 2 god is omnipotent or is God not totally omnipotent because there's free will? Option three, God is good. God is all powerful. But that suffering we think is all bad that we're struggling with, maybe there's a higher purpose to it that we don't understand. That's a lot to think about there. While I believe the answer to the question of theodicy is hidden from us in this life, nobody knows, I think one must recognize that suffering emerges independently of human decision. Famines, natural disasters, and terminal illnesses arise all the time without necessarily being caused by human failings or being necessary to preserve human freedom. However, Leibniz, in his position of optimism, argues that if an all-powerful and all-knowing God created this world, it must be the best possible world that could have been created. Therefore, what appears to be a flaw in the world must be a part of the intentional and benevolent plan. With his rational defense of God's goodness, 
Leibniz seeks to bring together philosophy and theology, thereby reconciling faith and reason. This is a profoundly modern project of the Enlightenment. His understanding that this world is the best possible world and that humanity has much to gain through the use of reason both emerge in the Enlightenment. As Jews, we should commend Leibniz for engaging in the struggle of theodicy. His work was significant in its time for having the intellectual courage to embrace such important challenges. And it is, it is for good reason that it's continued to be studied. Many people said, don't ask such questions. You humans know nothing. How dare you, you know, challenge the church, challenge the dogma, challenge the, the Bible. While there is much in Jewish thought that resonates with Leibniz's approach to the problem of evil, I don't think we can agree with his conclusion that the suffering we encounter and witness reflects the best that the world can be. We do find some examples in the Talmud, such as in Brachot 5a, that suffering can be seen as a kind of divine punishment, which should lead us to examine our actions. But modern Judaism has largely rejected that approach. A very liberal theologian like Rabbi Harold Kushner solves the problem of theodicy by arguing that God is not omnipotent. He also rejects the optimism of believing we're in the best possible world, seeing it as a childish theology. How could we worship a God who has the power to stop evil and doesn't? By the way, he just passed away uh, just a few months ago. In orthodoxy, Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg, 90 years old in Jerusalem, has expressed similar sentiments in his post-Holocaust theology. Both he and Kushner agree that God engages in an act of simtsum, simtsum, a contraction of God's presence in the world. According to Greenberg, one should view the Bible as true and believe that God intervened in history and performed the miracles of Tanakh. But at the same time, one must understand that as history progresses and humanity matures, God steps back further and Judaism embraces that maturation. Just like a parent um, is holding the hand of a young child and continues to let go of the hand of a child as they grow up. And as they mature, the parent steps back more and more. So too, as humanity matures, God steps back more and more, having less omnipotence. As God intervenes less in history, we must maximize human responsibility much more than in ancient generations. For example, the problem of the Holocaust is not the question of where was God, but where was humanity? So too, the problems of cancer and natural disasters are not to be resolved by God, but through advancements in human knowledge. A different orthodox response is taken by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. Although he was modern and rationalist, he sought to reframe the problem of theology. Unlike Leibniz, who thought that reason could help us answer the questions if it raised, Soloveitchik argued that we must not focus on the question of evil, but rather our active response to it, an idea later echoed by his student Greenberg. Don't ask why bad things happen or why suffering exists. Rather, ask oneself what one's response to them should be. The lack of an answer to the problem of evil should be viewed as a call to our responsibility 
Greenberg teaching. On this problem, Soloveitchik felt the proper response is action, not thought. Now, reminder, Soloveitchik is a philosopher and he's in the Beit Midrash studying Talmud. Thought is his life. But he says, thought only goes so far. Don't get stuck in this theodicy in the realm of thought. The problem of evil is to be responded to with healing, with bridge building, with action, not through thought. What makes us religious for Soloveitchik is not finding a perfect answer to our questions, but the actions of our healing we're called to take. He doesn't reject the problems brought up by philosophy. He sees the integrity of them and sees the complexity of it all. But he also recognizes that theodicy is not resolvable. In a sense, he's not dismissing the philosophical project, but reorienting it and elevating it. In addition to the problem of evil, Leibniz also explored another paradox, the belief in both free will and God's omnipotence. Though these two truths appear to contradict each other, both Leibniz and Jewish texts affirm they can live side by side. As it says in Pirkei Avot, everything is foreseen, yet freedom of choice is granted. Right? That paradox. How, wait a minute. If God knows what I'm going to do, then how am I free to choose it? If God already knows what I'm going to choose, then it's determined. But Pirkei Avot says, what you will do is foreseen, and yet you are still free to choose it. <laughs> Try wrapping your head around that one for a little while. According to Leibniz, God knows the future, and yet we're still free to act. The reason this is true is due to our limitations as humans. Though God knows what we will choose, and that may seem unfree, we don't know what we will choose. We don't know what we will choose. So we experience this as freedom, because I don't know what I'm going to choose, even though God does. <laughs> so I experience myself in an act of freedom. In the end, to conclude here, we must recognize that Leibniz does not deny the existence of suffering. So why then does God allow this seeming imperfection? For Leibniz, it exists so that humans can learn, repair their false notions, and attain a higher good. This is not too far off from the Jewish belief in tikkun olam, that bad things happen because the world is imperfect, and that it consequently must be repaired by humans. And so I think ultimately we have to side with Rabbi Greenberg and Rabbi Soloveitchik. Regardless of God's role in the existence of evil, we have the moral power to know injustice when we see it. What matters most is what we do about it. Okay, dear friend, Voltaire's coming up. Okay, Voltaire's next week. So uh, yeah, he's right around the corner. Okay, we'd love to hear from folks if you want to hop in at all here. Uh, hey, Gary. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so... I'm familiar with Susum, I think is the correct pronunciation. Uh, so uh, my question is, is, is humanity really matured? If we're looking at it from a parent perspective, uh, as a historian, I would have to say, or study history, I have to say, mm, I'm not so sure we keep remaking uh, the same mistakes over and over and over again. Uh, and, and as a parent, you know, sometimes we have to hold on to our kids longer than our other children. Uh, so, uh, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I like the, the, the philosophy of it, uh, and uh, of the parent, I, I, have, you know, a lot of modern Jewish thinkers utilize the parent concept, you know, for, for, in Judaism, but I don't know if we really matured. <laughs> okay. 
Wonderful, Gary. Thank you for that. There's two ways to approach Gary's very thoughtful question. One way to approach it is to say, has human nature changed? That's a complicated question. Um, the, the, the second way to approach the question is, let's approach that on a, uh, on a nature level. Human nature as nature, um, and, and then the, the question of human nature as, um, a, as, as nurture, which is to say, have the human systems we live in brought out a better or a more mature or less mature side of humanity? Now, on the side of just nature, um, there's no doubt if you look at neuroplasticity and you look at kind of the, um, the you know, I, I hate to call it the evolution of the human because humans don't evolve in the course of decades. We evolve over the long period of time. But, um, but in our basic nature, I would agree with Gary's uh, critique, which is to say that the fundamental human being we are today um, is the fundamental human being we were 2000 years ago. If, if a baby was born in a forest today and had no idea if the year was five common era or 2023, is that baby any different than that child 2000 years ago? My hunch is um, very little, if at all, different. Um, what makes them different is the society they're raised in, by and large. And so has humanity matured in our essence, in our nature? I'm sure there's some interesting scholarship that would challenge what I'm saying again, on neuroplasticity and how the brain has changed based upon how it's been conditioned in modernity. But by and large, I'd say no. On the question of societal evolution, societal progress, there's no doubt that the demands on human beings have evolved immensely. The responsibility humans have has, 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 has changed significantly. And that the level of empowerment of the human in 21st century America is um, unrecognizable from the past. The fact that we can vote for politicians, we participate in democracy. The fact that we have social media where we all have a platform to exercise to um, our voices. The fact that um, um, we have choices, many of us have choices in our careers, in our education, in who we choose to marry or not marry. Um, the level of choice the human being experiences today as compared to a few hundred years ago is astronomical. Now, that also means that we are not perfectly equipped by any means, but more equipped to make choices, right? If you took someone 300 years ago and said, what career do you want? Who do you want to marry? Where do you want to go to college? Um, what kind of house do you want to live in? Be like, oh my gosh, I, I don't have any tools to think about such questions. Like, what do you... But we have been raised in an empowered culture where we think that we have to make a whole ton of choices. Who are your friends? Well, your friends are not just the people you grew up next to in the house next to you anymore, right? Who are you going to marry? It's not that person your parents decided for you. What is your career? It's not what your father did or your mother did, right? And so we have potentially matured in the sense that we are more equipped to make a whole ton of choices. Um, um, and, um, and so, um, but yeah, if you look at 20th century and the atrocities of the 20th century, it also means that a whole lot of things we call progress are also things that are destructive. Um, and that the potential for evil is greater than ever, even if the potential for good is greater than ever. Um, what we see happens in fascist governments and what happens in authoritarian, uh, authoritarian uh, regimes. 
and um, uh, and um, and other forms of things that some might view as progress, which is are not. For, for example, some people might think of prison as progress. What did we used to do? We used to lash people. We had physical corporal punishment. We hung people in the public square. We lashed them. We killed them. We shamed them. Um, now we have courts that, in theory, operate by, you know, by 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 the law and and as with as little bias as possible. <laughs> and then we have prisons where people can be incarcerated. But then we look at the whole new layers of oppression and injustice that merge from what has been called the, uh, the new Jim Crow um, and over sentencing and biases in sentencing, sentencing and the like. And so even things that we have new systems to tackle criminal justice with, we now have whole new levels of injustice that are created. We have the justice of a nation state and the nation state enables um, uh, the government to be responsible to their citizens. And then we have the injustices that are produced by, by, um, by the nation, nation state. And so anyways, that's a very long response to Gary's thoughtful question around, um, which is much more thoughtful than any response. Has humanity matured? And we can ask ourselves, are we dealing with the essence of the human being? Are we dealing with the societal structures? Are we dealing with how the essence of the human re responds to the societal structures? And I think the only answer is to problem problematize the question itself. So thank you, Gary. Yes, hi, Aglaia. All right, so I have a couple of things and I'm still a little emotional, so start, sorry about this, but okay. So first of all, with Gary, I'm just gonna respond by saying um, the way that I explain this to students is that you're dealing with a Hydra. So when it comes to like, are, have we like matured and everything like that, we're cutting off heads of a Hydra. So, which means every time, yeah. So, okay, the first thing I wanna throw out there though is that um, when it comes to, well, God already has foreseen everything though, but humans still have a choice. Well, the thing is though, is that was there only one possible, you know, like one possible outcome? God might've seen infinite choices. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I think about humans is that really is interesting about us, it's like not AI. I mean, you know, AI is gonna eventually get a little predictable. And, you know, at least at some point, it's going to get a little predictable. Whereas humans, well, we're predictable only most of the time. And there's always that chance. And so that's one of the ways that I handled, you know, philosophically thinking about that problem. Now, when it comes to, you know, okay, I was one of the ones who said evil's a barrier between, you know, God and me. Okay, well, if that's not obvious, it was me. One of them was me. But anyway, though, but yeah, all right. So one of the only ways that I was able to handle that, though, is not exactly, I mean, for a while, I was really like, I would read the book of Job and I'd think, I'm just really pissed off, you know, anyway, though, you don't want to know. Okay, but then here's the thing that I started thinking about those that, well, God actually never said, hey, I'm the good guy here, never said that he's the good guy, or they're the good guy. Usually I say they, but they never said that they're the good guy. And so because they never say that they're the good guy, maybe they're not the good guy. And maybe that's my, you know, like issue. Am I going to actually even be able to love God if I cannot say, okay, I'm not really happy with you right now, though, but eventually, though, like, I'm going to have to, like, find a way to forgive you for this. So are we actually tasked with, you know, having to forgive God? Now, usually if I ask that question in a classroom with a bunch of students who are a bunch of Christians, they all start freaking out on me about how nothing's God's fault. God's the good guy, that kind of stuff and everything. But then I end up, because I have to be obnoxious, as a teacher, I cannot resist being obnoxious. I just say something like, okay, well, if God actually is so far above us that they never wanted 
for humans, I mean, just to, you know, love, you know, to basically have to forgive them, but then how are we supposed to love them? Or then just to be even more obnoxious, okay, so why was Jesus washing people's feet? And usually they look at me like, as usual, this lady's completely out of her mind. So I don't know how to connect the two, but yeah, there is a pot or the three actually though. One, we have a Hydra. Two, there are infinite, God sees infinite choices all at once though. So humans can pick any one of those infinite choices. So there is actually freedom of choice, even if God's foreseen everything. And then three, the other thing though, is that, well, I mean, maybe, you know, God's not going to tell us that they're the good guy necessarily. So, you know, Maybe that's part of our task. If we're going to love God, maybe there's forgiveness also in the process. Thanks, Aglaia. Um, a lot of interesting stuff there, which I hope provocative thoughts for others. And I appreciate your point around one way to resolve that paradox that, you know, that yes, God does see, but not necessarily the, the actual choice that will be made, but all possible choices in a sense. Um, what's what's um, uh, everything, what, everything all at once? What's the movie called? <laughs> um, yeah, y- y'all know what I'm talking about. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, and so that's if you haven't seen that movie yet, um, it's it, it's it's worth seeing. In any case, um, it's worth reminding us, picking up on this point, that Abraham, Abraham, the first Jew and the found, founder of monotheism, with Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, um, famously challenges God: Will the God of uh, will, will will the God of justice not do justice? You know, and that that's that he is not silenced for that. It's almost a welcomed voice. And that God's response is, you're right. More or less, you're right. Um, you know, if there's 50 innocent people in Sodom, are you, will you destroy it? Okay, fine, I won't. And so this sense that actually God should be accountable to our human notions of justice um, is one that seems to resonate there um and so that's it's an interesting it's an interesting challenge and if, when we read those passages of, of of our takeaway there ethan writes uh the jewish people the israelites literally translates to what right to one who wrestles with god exactly this that the idea is not just to submit but to challenge and to think and to wrestle yeah beautiful okay good who else wants to jump in here hi, hi rabbi I'll, I'll jump in if, if that's okay um I want to I want to go back to your poll question, um, and I think you, as you often do, appropriately named that maybe there are answers outside of the poll question that couldn't be fit in. Um, I probably would have landed on choice D, none of none of the above necessarily for me. Um, and the way that I rationalize evil is. Um, it has, has its roots in uh, a Kabbalistic teaching that you and I have talked about, Rabbi, and I'd like to hear your take on this. Um, and that is that God is everywhere in the world and is part of everything that is in the world, but that God is not all of everything that is in the world. And so that evil is the space in which God does not exist in yet. It is the absence of God. And therefore, God does not necessarily control that evil. I have trouble rationalizing a God who would allow a Holocaust to happen, a God who would allow mass shootings to happen, so on and so forth. 
but I can rationalize that a God who does everything possible to eradicate those things from our world and that the existence of those things is just the fact that God has not gotten there yet. Um, and I think that in some ways that comes from a Kabbalistic teaching that when God was done creating the world, that they tried to fit themselves into a small space and exploded out into the world. And that's where Nishama, the part of our soul uh, that is God-like comes from. Um, and that the concept of tikkun olam is actually collecting those pieces of the world to bring back together. And so I, I, I guess my, my question is to uh, Rabbi, I'm, I'm interested in hearing your take on Judaism's concept of God's omnipotence in the world, as if to say, is God really controlling everything that is in the world, or is just God existing in, in everything there is in the world? But the, there may be other uh, that's out there, and maybe in that other is where we find evil. Great, great. Thank you so much, Ethan, for sharing that theology uh, that's meaningful to you, and it's powerful to hear that articulated. By the way, I, you know, um, it's worth noting that even though we've entered into the um, 17th century um, and most of our later thinkers are not really engaged with much um, of God and theology at all, they're going to be engaged with issues of ethics and society, that this has reemerged. This has reemerged in the 16th century. And so we'll transition beyond some of these questions, but we pause for Leibniz given how dominant this is, even within the, the realm of ethics, of how much is our responsibility versus giving up control of responsibility? Um, because if you think God's in God's in charge, you might not you, you know you might not feel so um, charged up to go change the world. Uh, you may still feel like there's something holy about walking in God's compassionate path, or you may feel like you know what, eat, drink, and be merry. What matters more than the good is the meaningful. I want my my day to be meaningful, not to be good, and so I'm going to do whatever's meaningful to me as opposed to what's going to maximize the good around me. Um, and so th this is most certainly related to the ethical questions we're going to continue to explore because whatever theological underpinning we, we, we embrace, I say embrace rather than have perfect faith in, but the assumptions we take of, is there a God? And if there is a God, how does God operate with this world um, are going to be related to what we understand our responsibility to be. Um, and what we expect of other people as well. And so to pick up on Lurianic Kabbalah that Ethan was sharing, this notion of Shvirata Kalim, that there was a unity, there was a oneness to the universe. And it broke, it broke. And all these holy sparks were scattered into everything everywhere by and, by and large. And the work of Tikkun Olam of repairing the world is raising up the sparks, is elevating these sparks. And as Ethan said, like, um, the spaces of darkness are spaces where we need to kind of crack open the shell and liberate the light in those spaces of darkness. Um, and, um, and that's our task in this world, right? What is our role in this world? And according to that theology, it is to liberate the light hidden in the darkness. It is to bring out the godliness that's hidden within that, that, that darkness. And, that, and that's why God needs us. That, that's kind of what's radical about that Kabbalistic idea that it's not just that God doesn't need us. It's just the kindness that humanity was created, but God actually needs us to do something here um, in a sense. 
something that um, um, requires our participation. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 I do find that, that, that idea very compelling, that humans are here created in covenant in partnership to do our role that nobody else can do. Um, and that every day we're confronted with, I hate to say infinite, but something close to an infinite potential of possibilities to raise up goodness around us and within us. And um, uh, in a way that brings more godliness into the world. So, um, so Ethan, thank you for that. And um, um, really a lot more to say there, but let me, let me pause there and thank you for that and, and invite someone else to, ha to hop in in the conversation now. I'll hop in. Great. Hi, Sarah. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm stimulated by many of the comments. We'll start with Mr. Donut. Um, I like your, yeah, nice shirt. So um, the maturity, the maturation of beings and, and my, the first question that arose for me was, okay, so we all mature differently and universally, where has our spiritual maturation gone? There's, there's this huge movement in our world towards a, a strong religious dictatorship, whatever that religion is. And we're seeing wars within and without those communities, much less what it's doing to our planet when we have these wars. But what about our spiritual peace? And I agree with you, Ethan. I love the, the notion that I am carrying one of those sparks that helps me to act in the world and looks for, even in what might be termed evil, as something is still glowing in there and it has not matured. It's not an emptiness as much as a lack of maturation. Um, whether it's been something done from the outside or within, my, my notion always is trauma has affected that being and has that being therefore has failed to grow beyond that moment of pain and perhaps even torture. Whether God has all the answers, I don't know. The thing that came up for me when I was listening to you, Aglaia, was I thought, okay, God, the God with the infinite notions of all of my choices is the, is the God from Ingmar Bergman of sitting there at the chess table and the, the all-knowing, knowing every choice that that other player is going to, to make. And, and we see so little. We can only trust that part of us that is connected to perhaps what is infinite and what is still glowing in us. Mm. And I'm complete for the moment. Thanks, Sarah. Anyone want to respond to some things that Sarah brought up here or engage with them? It's a lot there. Can I just jump in and say that I, well, we're God wrestlers and we're God's chess opponents, which would be really cool <laughs> too. A chess player is a partner. I definitely believe that I am in that covenant, in that partnership on this planet 
during this lifetime. And so, yeah, I, I kind of, you were speaking and I just thought, yes, this is interesting. And the other thing that came up at the very beginning when we started talking about evil was I found myself going to, and where do corporations, you know, yeah, they're made up of people, but now our Supreme Court has said that they are people. And where does God's relationship to that person live? And is there a spiritual soul within any given corporation that we can see acted and often not acted out? Wow. Powerful. So, okay. So um, some folks we haven't heard from yet, if Ed wants to jump in or Michael or Gail or RH, Arnie, hey, Michael. Yeah, I can jump in. Um, so this conversation um, makes me think uh, about the Matrix, uh, oddly enough, um, the original original Matrix movie. And there's a scene where one of the characters, one of the, I guess, evil characters is, is eating a, a steak. And he tells Neo, who's the main character played by Keanu Reeves, that the original Matrix was created as a utopia where there was no evil, there was no suffering, there was no strife, and it didn't work because humans rebelled against it completely, that they didn't believe it, they didn't, they, and they rebelled against it. I think about evil and human strife and suffering as present solely for the purpose of kind of prodding change. Um, and as painful as it is, obviously, and as traumatic as it is, um, if you can if one can kind of take a larger lens to it and you can see the kind of evolution. Uh, we learn through our mistakes, whether it's ours or others, and 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 we grow. And and it goes all the way back to the, you know, to you know, cave people days where you learn, oh, you know what, I'm not gonna tug on the saber-tooth tiger's tail because that's not such a good idea. And you learn and you grow and you evolve. Um, and without this suffering, there's really no reason for us to change. Um, and I think a lot about the work that 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 we do. Uh, you know, volunteer work or the uh, community work we do, it, it's in response to wanting to fix uh, a suffering or, or wanting to remedy a, an, an evil. And if that wasn't existing, then we would have no impotence to do that, to get involved. Um, and one of my like present worries, and this doesn't really have a lot necessarily to do with our conversation today, um, is that we're seeming to move into a time that really no longer allows for mistakes or, or rather people are still making mistakes, but they're precluded from learning from them. They're canceled or they're, you know, wiped off the internet or, or whatever. And, and I think that's a very troubling thing, present thing that's happening because our evolution is so tied into our ability to grow and learn from mistakes and to to suffer and and to to you know to heal and to grow and etc yeah yeah thank you i mean one of the classic cases there michael on mistakes feels like the power of teshuva in judaism um you know is um uh, is so healing and powerful and it's not bidyeved meaning bidyeved meaning um non-ideal. It's not like, oh, we need teshuva, repentance, because people are going to make mistakes. It's built in as a good. 
humans will make mistakes and teshuva strengthens our relationships. When, when we love people and we say sorry to them, we, we have the possibility of coming closer to them, right? Mistakes can actually make us uh, deepen love. It can deepen our, 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 our glue that brings us together. Um, that's also true in the workplace, not just in intimate relationships of what mistakes can teach us about where we're going and how we make a mistake organizationally and we and we just evolve. Um, and it's most certainly true, um, you know, as you, as you brought up cancel culture. I mean, I'm of the belief and people push back if you disagree. I'm of the belief that there are, there's real haters out there and we should go after real haters. We should make people who hate women or hate Jews or hate queer people and, and, and uh, you know, hate people of color and on and on, that they're held accountable and they're not in positions of leadership and that there's consequences for that. And then there's so many good people who say a dumb thing. There's so many good people who just don't know the, 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 the language of our day. People who experiment with an idea. And I'm of the belief that those people, you know, should be called in rather than called out. Those people should be engaged with compassionately and help them understand um because we all do that my gosh and especially looking at the younger generation the things that we said as kids and and the pictures we took as kids that if that was all over the internet today like like you know and today you know they say things they take pictures of things and it's 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 all out there can they even get, get it scrubbed off the internet permanently and so i think a little compassion on this front around mistakes i i i, I appreciate that i know we've just waded into a deeper area um of, of public discourse today, um, but I very much appreciate with, with, with uh, what you had to say, and very much agree that in my own life, I don't wish pain on anyone or suffering on anyone, but pain has been crucial to becoming who I am, um, and some of the most uh, painful parts of my life molded me in ways of who I want to be today, and I couldn't have had it without. And my mother said the same thing, that she felt like her cancer. Again, she doesn't wish cancer on anyone. She's not saying cancer is good. But her cancer changed who she was. She simply said, I've become less superficial. I simply have um, become much more focused on what really matters. I've become a stronger person. Th that wasn't her saying cancer is good, but it was her ability to say like this pain, this pain um, brought deep insights into my life that I would not have become this person without. Okay, who else have we not heard from who wants to jump in? Ed, you wanna hop in at all there? No, not right now. Okay. RH, you're, yeah, I don't even see you or Gail, Arnie. Otherwise, um, we can go back to folks who have shared already. Okay. Yes. Okay. Gary, and then Aglaia. Yes. I just wanted to respond uh, to Michael on his comment, which, which I happen to agree with completely. And we all learn to ride a bike by falling and skidding our knees. I mean, that's very simplistic, but, but, but I, but we've had a change in society where I don't do any wrong. It's your problem, not mine. You know, uh, the Bible says this, uh, uh, whatever, or the Torah, in, in case of Orthodoxy Judaism, that I didn't create the problem. I, you're the one that's living the wrong way. You are acceptance of, of, of queer people or not accepting because the Bible says this and uh, on and on and on and on. So I, I think we've reached a different societal problem that people aren't willing to take responsibility for themselves. And that's part of the what I call a me-oriented society. It's about me. You, uh, I'm doing the right thing. It's you that are doing doing the wrong thing. 
Awesome. Aglaia, over to you. Okay, so I've been a kind of ball of emotion this whole time. I'm really sorry, but okay, so I was in Eddie's presentation and Eddie made me cry. <laughs> and so that's one of the reasons why I've been a ball of emotion. But the it actually what I was gonna say is piggybacking on the presentation that Eddie did at you know earlier today was that okay, so I know that I think the quote was from Achmanides, but it was about like um this sort of selfishness and jealousy, like, well, if you are paying attention to what happens to migrants, you don't care about me. So that means I'm going to like freak out and say, you can't care about the migrant because you have to care about me. Now, if we're talking about though, like in terms of like, you know, Mike was saying and what Don Gary's saying, well, you know, maybe it's not all about us. And maybe that's why we have also, I mean, not to justify suffering or anything like that though, but if we're going to learn why we have, like why we have to actually step up to the plate and learn from suffering in order to get out of this, oh no, it's all about me. So if I'm canceling someone, well, why, what are my motivations for actually canceling this person? Are they, you know, actually sorry for what they did? Then why not just, if they're sorry for what they did and they decided to like do something about it, then why keep canceling them? Or if I'm defending someone who's canceling, who's been canceled, what are my motivations for defending them? Am I defending myself or am I defending them? So I don't know, but I think that um, like, um, I'm just going with what Mike and Gary were saying and what Eddie was saying, you know, maybe it's not all about us. <laughs> I mean, I'll just go there. It's not all about me. I think Leibniz would be impressed that we've, we've, we've taken his work and moved to this direction. So. Um... This is a good place to pause. I think that whatever we conclude on if there's a God and how that God operates in the world and how to understand evil with that presence of divinity, some profound questions emerge around our responsibility and our role, what we can accomplish together and how religion or faith or spirituality can be in service of that and not hindering that. Um, and how those theologies can be motivating rather than uh, barriers to expressing compassion and love in the world. And as Soloveitchik said, regardless of what we think or coming to a resolution at all, the most important question perhaps is what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about the evil in my midst? Um, and of course, I, I say of course, but of course, I think, and I, I just figure you've heard me say it enough times, that that question always begins with ourselves. How are we going to take responsibility for ourselves? Um, even before we combat evil outside of ourselves, whatever's in us that might be pushing darkness out. And that's the hardest work. And that's the work of this week as well, the work of teshuva, the work of being introspective um, around our own um, shadows and um, bringing those shadows out of the dark spaces and into the light where we can wrestle with them. And perhaps wrestling with our own dark side is also wrestling with God as well. Um, and maybe not an answer will come out of that, but maybe a deeper commitment to that daily spiritual work of, of wrestling. Have a wonderful day, everyone. See you at Voltaire next week. <laughs>